and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week, going to guide you gently through another show with my co-host, PR Week's executive editor, Frank Washcook. How are you doing, Frank? Doing well. Thanks for having me on, Steve. How's the marathon training going? You've uh, got a Got some races oh, this year, but yeah, you, no, you no full marathons, full disclosure. But uh, you know, doing some smaller stuff, getting the speed back, working hard, going big in twenty five. Yeah, maybe we'll see. That was tragic news about that runner. Who, yeah, uh, it's it's really died, wasn't it? It's it's really crushing. It was uh, Kelvin Kiptum who um, broke the world record at twenty three, and and you know most competitive marathoners of which i am not one most certainly well, i don't know about that i've but seen they, uh, you doing the new york one mate yeah well um but he broke the world record at 23 and most don't peak until they're in their 30s and he had a real, a real chance of going under two real long career in, in front of him yeah so it's, it's really it's it's, it it's terrible terrible news yeah um so we're going to chat to frank lots of stories this week we are uh, talking about uh, that interview i guess you could call it an interview with uh Pro- with Putin from uh, Tucker Carlson and all the fallout from that. And the John Stewart return, we didn't get a chance to talk about that last week, but that kind of relates to Tucker, especially in his second show. And um, President Biden's sort of an increased pushback on the media. So a segment around that. John Deere's done an interesting take on uh, working with an influencer. They've dared a tech influencer to have a go at farming. So we'll uh, talk about that. Acquisitions in the agency space. Interesting uh, story with LLYC, the Spanish uh, agency buying a a U.S. firm. Meltwater and Microsoft have teamed up on an AI partnership. Chip making, if you're, um, and I don't mean the fatty potato variety, I mean the uh, little items that fuel most of our computing and AI. So NVIDIA, they're pretty much the hottest company in the world at the moment. They've got their results this week. We'll talk about that and the chip making hype. Reddit is having its IPO and they're doing that in an unusual way. And then we'll run through people moves and anything else that catches our eye. But first of all, we've got a fantastic guest. It's Teddy Goff. He's the co-founder of Precision. And uh, Teddy, welcome to the show. Really good to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Steve. Thanks for having me, Frank. So yeah, tell us about um, Precision because your history is in politics. You uh, worked for the Obama re-election campaign in uh, 2012, and we're really involved in the digital side of that. Very, very innovative work you did then, and uh, and then once you once you'd come out of that, you you uh, launched an agency off the back of it with Stephanie Cutter, who's another Obama veteran. So, talk us through the agency, how it came about, and how you've developed over the past decade. Yeah, I think I think Stephanie has been a guest on this very uh, esteemed. She has. She um, has. Stephanie and I, and we had a, a third co-founder, Jen O'Malley Dillon, who left us a few years ago to be uh, then-candidate Biden's campaign manager and is now his deputy chief of staff in the White House. Jen and Stephanie and I um, all worked together, um, actually on both Obama campaigns, but particularly got close on the re-election in 2011 and 2012. I was digital director. Um, Jen and Stephanie were both deputy campaign managers. During the campaign I, I kid you not, I'm not being um, coy. Um, you are not thinking about what your next job is going to be. You're desperately trying to win the election and focused on the um, you know mammoth task you have at hand. But after the election, I think we were all ready to be, um, I don't want to say done with politics altogether, but certainly done with it as a, as a full-time 
profession, started talking about building an agency and, and I think started to realize that what we had built on the campaign looked a lot like what an agency could look like and what we, you know, humbly thought might be a better agency than what was out there in the market. You know, we had built this massive integrated operation, integrated across traditional communications, digital, paid media, um, all um, driven by data. And um, we'd had, you know, 18 or 20 months under the, um, you know, kind of highest spotlight and the highest pressure situation to figure out how those things can all work together and, and um, can be, you know, brought to bear to um, get you to a victory. And we thought that's what everybody needs, not just campaigns, but companies, um, adv advocacy organizations, foundations, nonprofits. And so Precision was, was born a few months after this. Campaign, um, so it's been um, how long? Yeah, we've seen like on the client side, we see a lot of people go there, like Josh Ernest and uh, many others. Um, but I guess the same thing applies on the agency side. You get such unique experience in that political world, and you talked about it fast moving. It's almost like a constant, not a crisis, but it's twenty four seven, isn't it? Just tell us how that sort of experience has has navigated over to the agency world and and being you know able then to put to provide great counsel and services to your clients. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think campaigns are obviously different from what most companies out there are facing, but what I've learned over the 11 and a half years, I guess it's been since the campaign um, is that they're not that different. Everybody is trying to um, build community and build loyalty with their customers. Campaigns have a particular way of doing that, but that's what companies are trying to do and nonprofits are trying to do too. Uh, everybody is trying to figure out how to mobilize people. I'm um, getting people to vote or to register to vote as a sort of a niche form of mobilization, but the kind of, I think the art and science behind it is a lot like trying to get people to go buy something or go, you know, take a, take a stance on an issue or um, change their mind on an issue. You know, it's, I think the, the mechanics of that are not all that different. And I think that the mentality that one, that you get in politics and can bring to work in the private sector is really valuable. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm often reminded that, you know, campaigns have a binary outcome, you win or you lose. And that's not the case for virtually all corporate enterprises, maybe every now and again, but, but usually there's, you know, they're um, operating indefinitely and they're trying to get to growth. It's not so, so binary. But I think the mentality that you have when you have everything on the line and when you understand that what you are doing for a year and a half of your life is either going to get you to success or to, you know, utter failure and then the, you know, policy consequences of that failure, when you bring that mentality to a corporate project of some kind, it's actually um, helpful. You know, you have to realize that it's different. You don't have this deadline next November. You're not, again, going toward this binary outcome, but you have to be um, as relentless and strategic and data driven, you know, as if you were going to this you know, uh, sort of life or death um, outcome of election day. And I think, um, I think we found it to be a pretty good kind of training ground for folks who work here yeah. or at lots of other agencies. We're of course not the only ones to come out of politics who then I think go on to do incredible work in the private sector. Yeah. I mean, you're trying to influence or change behavior at the end of the day, aren't you? And um, whilst it might not be the white hot heat of, of an election, although I'm sure it is at some times when there's a crisis on or something like that. And that's when the skills can really come in handy. Just talking about digital, and you mentioned it earlier, you've got online, you've got social, you've got mobile. Paid is now a key part of PR, isn't it? You know, the, the peso mix, if you like, paid, earned, shared, and owned, all of those elements. How have you seen that develop since uh, the election? Because it's kind of odd when, you, when you're a digital director with a campaign. A lot of that's that expert, not expertise, but a lot of the technology kind of disappears with the campaign, doesn't it? It doesn't hmm. kind of, um, 
evolve. It's not like they use it in the next uh, election. Maybe you can explain that, actually, because it always seems curious to me. And where do you think politics is at now in terms of moving on and taking advantage of data and analytics, which has obviously advanced incredibly over the last decade? Uh, those are big questions that have kind of bedeviled uh, at least my party for uh, longer, even than I've been involved in these things. You know, I think there's a huge number of reasons why it's hard to uh, take the, the the technology that's built on one campaign and um, and bring it over to, uh, to with you to the next campaign. Some of them are legal. Some of them are really kind of practical and operational. It's um, relatively easy, not even all that easy, but relatively easy to recruit top notch, let's say, engineers or product managers in the heat of an election cycle when they really, really, really uh, want your guy to win. And by the way, this applies to both parties. Um, it's a lot harder to get them to consider moving to, let's say, D.C. in perpetuity and doing that in the odd numbered year where the intensity of the election or the intensity of the feeling that you get that everything's on the line is is um, is reduced. So there's a there's a, a lot of reasons why I think it's been difficult for uh, at least my party to, you know, take the, the technology that's built in a presidential cycle and and, and continue to improve on it in, in the off years and um and bring it to the next election cycle. That's part of the reason um, there's been the, the fairly explosive growth of this sort of cottage industry of privately funded um, political tech. Um, now, the market there is not huge. So I think what those companies have had to do, maybe their ideal client is a presidential campaign or the Senate campaigns or whatever, um, but they've also got to get um, uh, you know nonprofit clients, advocacy clients, maybe corporate clients. And, and that's um, you know sort of a booming industry, relatively speaking. I mean, politics is still a, a small business overall, um, but a, a sort of a booming industry. You know, you also asked how things have changed. Now, I mean, we're talking about the 2012 election, which is fairly ancient history. Um, you know, I mean, that was like before, way before TikTok. Um, you know, I think, you know, so to, to maybe not look quite that far back, but take a look at the past few years, you know, I'm tracking a few things and, and you've got uh, really sophisticated uh, listeners. And by the way, you two are really sophisticated. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. But I think what I think we've witnessed in the past few years is if not the death, then the, you know, kind of rapid decline of social media as we have known it for the first 20 years of social media. You know, I increasingly counsel clients to just put virality out of their brains. It happens from time to time. Um, it was never a bankable strategy, but right now it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's as unbankable as, as ever. The way I look at, let's say, TikTok and Reels is essentially as streaming platforms for short form, you know, vertical content. Um, and so they're really important. They're really interesting. There's lots of things that brands can do with them, but they're not social networks in the way that Instagram or Facebook or even Twitter were five years ago. Needless to say, Twitter slash X is going through it right now. You know, I'm not prepared to call it dead. I think people still spend time there. I think, and you and I have talked about this, I think it has, at least right now, a kind of irreplaceable uh, role when it comes to breaking news and when it comes to being a, a second screen experience for when you're watching TV or, uh, you know, and, and you may not want to watch a video on your phone, you're watching TV, but you may want to be engaging with text. So yeah. I'm ready to call Multi-screen. it screen. But it's, you know, but, but it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's relevance is, has declined, um, uh, really, really precipitously. Um, you know, so I think, you know, I think, um, as you, as you already noted, um, the, um, increasing uh, importance of digital ads, um, that's not going anywhere. And I think we have to define digital ads really expansively. I think, uh, the user has no idea whether CTV and OTT are digital or not. 
um, but they're watching these things more often than we realize on their phones. And you can advertise on most of those platforms. So those are important platforms. And I think certainly in political spaces, often in corporate spaces, the the power of digital ads is still brought into question. I think we have to move beyond that. They're powerful. We have a million case studies to show it. It also um, ought to go without saying in an environment where we spend way more time on our phones than we do in front of the TV or any other um, device, in, in many cases, more often, uh, more time than we even spend sleeping or uh, or talking to our uh, family for better or worse. So I think that's, that's a true. one. I think, again, um, the, the decline of social media, but coupled, um, I think, with the rise of um, these new kinds of what I would consider streaming platforms um, like TikTok and Reels is a hugely important one. Um, three, I would say the rise of closed networks, and that's been going on for a, a long time. So maybe it's just that marketers are finally catching wise to it and there's new ways that we can play around in them. But you know, a huge share of the discussion, certainly about politics, but also about brands and culture and the weather and everything else we talk about in this world is happening on iMessage, on WhatsApp, either one-on-one or group texts. And you know, that's a, a really important phenomenon in the society. And that is where, to the extent that virality is happening, that is where it's happening. It's no longer happening through, you know, millions of retweets. It's happening through, um, you know, information and sometimes content, you know, filtering their way out through millions of, of group texts and WhatsApp chats. But if you look over the last few weeks, you know, look at the Super Bowl. Frank, we did a poll on this, didn't we? You know, where did people uh, expect to be chatting about uh, the Super Bowl or about sports? It was they were back on X, weren't they? It was 70 plus percent, I think. And you, you've got to think that maybe that will, that trend might continue into the election um, by the by the trends we're seeing. Yeah, but you, you did also notice that your interaction was down pretty considerably from past years too. At least I did. And, you yeah. know, that's both, you know, looking at personal and professional accounts at the same time. Yeah. I think your point about WhatsApp is a good one. And um, if you look at Facebook, their results were incredible last, <laughs> the other week. And WhatsApp hasn't really got going yet, has it, as, a, as an acquisition yeah, yeah. there? Know, There's so wild. much growth to come there. YouTube is probably one of the biggest media owners uh, in you know out there that's again it's got a massive growth ahead of it so it is a it's a fascinating landscape for sure and um lots to uh, dig into and a lot for communicators to advise their clients on um teddy one of the things you were responsible for was whitehouse.gov that famous website what's your abiding memory of launching that one because that was uh, that was not without its um, issues wasn't it it was uh, even the topic of a was it a Zach Galifianakis uh, segment with uh, the president, which was really funny, by the way? But uh, what was what do you remember now, looking back on that? Well, I think I have to defend myself. I think you may be referring to healthcare.gov. That was the one with issues. Oh, okay, that was the one that uh, that Galifianakis Zach. took the uh, you know uh, had made, had some fun with the former president on whitehouse.gov was was much Obama smoother, held his own on that under the. I think it's um, a statute, but maybe it's just uh, maybe it's just how we wanted to do it. You have to, from one administration to the next, you have to flip at twelve o'clock on the dot on inauguration day. And when I tell you that we were QAing this thing at eleven fifty nine a.m. on inauguration day, I, I <laughs> not. So that's my uh, the anxiety of that morning and the previous day and the day before that. That is my abiding memory of that experience. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> so um, I mean, we'll talk when we get into. Um, the uh, next segment about the election, I, I guess, moving forward. Just to finish on precision, tell us about the sort of work you're doing. I mean, Stephanie's very, still very involved with the Democratic Party and the conventions. Is that more as a personal thing, as, or as part of the agency? And 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 tell us what's ahead for you for in in 2024 in terms of you know developments at the firm. 
Yeah. So we do that work. Stephanie leads that work via the agency. Obviously, it's a passion project for her and for the folks on the team who get to help out with that. But we do it via the agency. Um, we've always done a little bit of political work um, in an even numbered year, in an election year. It might be six or eight percent of our revenue. So it's not huge uh, by revenue. And then that goes down, you know, effectively to zero or maybe, you know, 1% or something like that in an odd numbered year. Um, We do it one, because we care about it. We like it. It's good for recruitment of staff. You know, it's good to, I think for us to kind of be in the mix, you know, campaigns are also really fast paced, even outside of presidential campaigns, just on Senate races and other kinds of races. You learn a lot, you meet a lot of people, you know, there's a variety of reasons why we want to continue to do that, but it's never been the emphasis of our business or how we've thought about, about growth or about revenue. Most of our work is either corporate or foundation. It's all, I shouldn't say all, but it's mostly, you know, connected, if not to politics per se, than to issues and to policy. You know, a lot of it is companies trying to navigate the current environment. I know you talk about this both, uh, you know, in in the website and in print and, and on this podcast a lot. It is increasingly difficult for companies to know how they're supposed to at minimum, stay out of trouble and ideally actually advance their um, positioning and endear themselves to customers and, and to employees for that matter and to all their other stakeholders, you know, when it comes to these divisive issues. So most of what we do, um, even when it is corporate, has some kind of connectivity, you know, again, not to partisan politics, but to what's going on in Washington and the kind of conversation around around issues, uh, around purpose, uh, around uh, CSR, ESG, all the other acronyms. And, <laughs> you know, um, we've had a, a tremendous few years. We're about 110 people people right now. Uh, our only offices are in New York and DC, although we've got a handful of people who work remotely. And, you know, we're looking forward to, you know, what should be a, a busy election cycle, not just at, because of the electoral work I did, but because uh, everything gets a bit supercharged during an election and companies and all kinds of organizations have to figure out exactly how they're going to navigate or, or stay the heck away, by the way, you know, stay the heck away from the election. And well, I shouldn't disclose our, our, our uh, secret plans, but we've got all kinds of secret plans to hire and grow and make some interesting moves in the coming months. Yeah, it's going to be a busy year, that's for sure, on so many levels. So uh, we wish you luck with that, Teddy, and uh, look forward to plotting the progress. Frank, let's bring you in. It was a busy week in a lot of ways. The Tucker Carlson interview, we didn't really have a chance to chat about that. It may not have happened when we last sat down. Extraordinary, wasn't it? And then would you, you know, call it an interview? Or well, I, 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 diluted history lesson. You, <laughs> I mean, you, you laugh about it, but it's not funny, is it? Because you know, Can I ask Navalny, though, did you, you both watch the whole thing, start to finish. I'm lying. I would be lying if I said I watched. <laughs> I, I I watched it as highlights. I, I got up until like. Putin was about the year 1700 or so. Just, <laughs> yeah. I have got a really excellent book, which is called The Short History of Russia. And um, it's, it's well worth reading, but it, it basically goes through the centuries. And um, yeah, there's been plenty of violence. Let's just put it that yeah. way um, over the centuries, not just in Russia, across the whole of Europe. But anyway, that's a whole other podcast. But then followed by the news about Navalny, uh, dying and the statement by about Evan Gershkovich, which was about the only question really that um, Tucker got got in. It was a bit of an fu, wasn't it, to uh, the whole process by the Russian president? Yeah, and I, um, other than trying to you know uh, drum up some attention to you know whatever he's working on now, and Teddy, I'd be interested in what you think about this, but I, I can't quite figure out what Tucker was trying to accomplish in this whole interview and they just um because you sort of saw the deer in the headlights look as soon as he got going and it was uh well i think what he would have loved would would have been to get maybe gershkovich 
released or yeah. something like that and then come home as the conquering hero or something like or some statement at least of moving forwards and listen I've been I've been on the subway for two days this week when I was thinking maybe that Russian subway is better, but I still think I'd rather take the uh, the New York subway over over the Russian one because at least I'm in a free country and uh, right. you know well, subway, yeah. <laughs> uh, there might not be chandeliers there and there might be fires on the F line or what have you, but the, you know there was there were all those other elements to it, weren't there? Yeah. Which felt very propagandish and like oh look at these supermarket carts. I, I want to touch on another thing you brought up, which was. Um, Look, uh, the what happened in Navalny is terrible. It's it's horrible, and it, it shows the you know the the political and social state that's happening there. Um, but I thought what his uh, the statement that his wife made, uh, the video that she put out within days of him dying was, I mean, it's truly remarkable and brave, and and um, it just showed so much backbone considering she knows what the stakes are and what could happen to her personally. I mean, it was really, and she uh, was really inspiring. Account, yeah. account was taken off X. You know, well, it's, it's back on, to be fair. Yeah, it's back on now. But. Yeah. But, but to see how quickly she sort of picked up the mantle, I mean, it was, it was, it was inspiring, really. Yeah, yeah the, and all that was happening in the context as well as of John Stewart's show came back at a yeah. good timing and, and the latest show sort of made you down on it um yeah teddy what what were you what were your observations on the whole sort of tragic comedic uh just extraordinary pro- you know, things of the happenings of the past uh, seven days well i think as for the tucker interview look i think i would love to think that he sincerely wants to get evan grishkowitz uh released i'm sure he doesn't uh object to that but it's hard for me to believe that was high on his list i think you know first of all he's trying to uh, recreate the, you know, the, the must watch, you know, indispensable, uh, media presence that he had with Fox, at least indispensable for his, his viewers. You know, second of all, I think he's trying to do a solid for his team. Now he may perceive Russia to be his team, but he certainly perceives the U S um, Republicans to be his team. And, um, you know, I think they think they've got a wedge issue on, uh, foreign aid, um, in general and, and certainly on, um, the war in Ukraine. And I, you know, I, I think he was, um, you know, trying to essentially launder, um, you know, um, Putin's views, uh, to a, to a pretty big domestic audience for purposes of his domestic political project. Now, in that sense, I think Putin squandered the opportunity, you know, I mean, Tucker may have squandered the opportunity to challenge him, although I don't think he ever seriously intended to do so, but Putin squandered the opportunity to, you know, be a better, um, uh, messenger for himself directly to the U S Republican party than, than I think he was now, like you, I say that having looked at highlights, uh, and not having suffered through the whole three hour, uh, history <laughs> lesson, but that's my, um, that's my takeaway, you know, as for Navalny, what is there, um, really to say it's obviously appalling. You have to, um, you have to admire the extraordinary courage of this guy, not only to become who he became over the course of two decades, but to have gone back there, you know, um, after his uh, poisoning in Germany, you know, yeah. certainly realizing that he was going to be imprisoned. And you have to, you know, you, you you had to assume that he assumed he would one day die uh, at the hands of Putin. I think it's hard to imagine. Yeah, kept um, in horrendous conditions. Otherwise. And, um, Do you think that segment would have run on Fox? You mentioned you know Tucker's time at Fox. Would that would they would even Fox have run a segment like that? 
Well, look, I think there were plenty of sort of, you know, quote unquote, mainstream journalists um, who came out and said, I would love to interview Putin. I would have absolutely, you know, I've, I've asked to interview Putin. So I don't have a, a, a problem um, with the idea of an American. But there's a difference between interviewing him and sort of yeah. sitting there like, a, you know, with, his, with your mouth open, you know, catching yeah, exactly. flies. Well, you know, I think um, so I would love to see a hard hitting, credible mainstream American journalist interview um, Putin and, and, you know, actually make this guy answer some tough questions, which he, of course, you know, virtually never has to do. Um, as for what Fox would have done if Tucker were still their guy, um, I imagine they would have edited that thing down uh, in a way that would have uh, definitely made uh, both Tucker and I hate to say it, but also Putin look pretty good. I think that's what they're uh, that's what they would have done. But let's talk about the John Stewart thing. Um, first of all, his viewing figures were very good for the first two weeks. Yeah. How much of an impact is he going to have on the election, or is he just speaking to a um, a you know? A, a a following that's already committed and is going to vote one way, or does he cut through to to a wider audience? Well, I think he has an interesting and unique perspective, and he um, communicates his ideas very cuttingly and very well. I don't know if he's going to actually have an impact on the election in terms of votes, but we shall see. What do you think, Teddy? Um, I think that he his influence on um, Republicans and even um, swing or undecided voters of whom there are very few um, is kind of de minimis. What I think he could do if he wants to, but I don't presume this is what he wants to, is help Democrats get comfortable with President Biden. Um, and I think he, you know, kind of obviously came out of the get- gate not exactly doing that. I think he, of course, had to do had to do what he did. He 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 can't appear to be a shill. Um, I think if his objective is to take, um, you know, his core audience uh, on a you know nine month journey that uh, results in them, you know, getting comfortable coming back home to President Biden, I think he could have some influence there. Yeah, we'll uh, we shall see. And talking about President Biden, Frank, he's. We've talked about his media strategy. You know, he doesn't get out there and do a lot. He didn't take the chance to take the Super Bowl free hit. Um, but he has s- sort of started pushing back a little bit more on the media in terms of the narratives around him. You can you can absolutely see the team. They're getting more aggressive, I think. And I, I think some of that started with uh, the moments after the Super Bowl with uh, the social media post about, you know, yeah. this, is, this is how we drew it up. Um, I, I think you can see... You can see it on social media and you can read about it in the AP story this morning about uh, the White House team pushing back on the coverage of the special counsel's report and why his age is getting more coverage than some of the things Trump has said that are, are, you know, banana republic stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think you can see they're they're absolutely going to push back more aggressively starting now. Teddy, you've been in the room when uh, they're constructing those strategies. Is it a case of, you know, keep your powder dry for a bit longer now? You know, this is a marathon, not a sprint. How do you sort of construct that? Uh, And and clearly every election is different. You know, we know there's two old guys running against each other. That, that, you know, that's pretty obvious to anyone. But but there are are narratives you can um, create within that construct, aren't there? Yeah, I think, you know, and I want to be clear, I don't speak for the Biden administration or campaign. Um, uh, I think there's always a variety of factors that goes into a, you know, a pivot like this. A, a lot of times it has to do with the principal, um, you know, getting getting frustrated. And I think he was, um, you know, very obviously frustrated with the uh, political nature of the special counsel report and that, you know, that demanded a response. Um, that, you know, there's also just the, you know, the obvious reality that this subject is on the minds of Americans, whether we like it or not. And, and it's got to be uh, handled and, and uh, 
um, can't be handled in, in hiding. Uh, that, in fact, just plays into the concerns that Americans have. So, you know, I, I think um, to me, and again, I'm saying this as an observer, not, um, you know, not, not someone who's involved in these decisions with, with this White House. Um, you know, I think it's obvious to me that where we're going to have to land is people need to see the president. And if we, you know, if they see him so rarely that every appearance is this high wire act, then every potential flub could have catastrophic consequences. Where if they see him regularly, just like with anyone else, just like with a person slightly younger, some of these appearances are going to be fabulous. Some of these appearances, you know, he's going to say something he wishes he hadn't said. And that's fine because you're going to see him again in a couple of days. So, uh, you know, I expect to, uh, that we will be seeing him more often as the calendar heats up, as they again continue to try to um, wrestle this particular story to the ground. As people start seeing more of the other um, old guy on the ballot, um, I have no doubt we'll continue to see more of, of President Biden. And I think on balance, that's going to help him. Um, doesn't doesn't mean that there won't be, um, you know, appearances that don't go great. Um, but, you know, I think on balance, that's going to help him. Yeah, we will cover it on the PR week as we uh, draw closer to the election. Frank, let's talk about um, influence, another angle to it in the business world. John Deere. They have dared a tech influencer to actually come and do some farming. Tell us all about it. Yes, farming is hard work, and that seems to be the message they are trying to get across by working with the uh, the tech influencer, David Kogan. Uh, he goes by at the unlocker on Instagram, and, and he's basically in charge of everything uh, on the farm. Uh, for a campaign that's going to run for a number of months from tilling the soil to figuring out how to sell corn. Uh, so I think it's an interesting campaign. I always think it's interesting when brands try to um, get out of their comfort zone target audience, so to speak, and uh, John Deere here trying to get in front of more of a tech audience. Um, always interested in how they measure ROI on these things, too. You know, getting in front of the tech media is great. You know, what does that ultimately do for Yeah, them? you can't really think of a yeah. more American company, can you, and a more traditional American company, but... Um, iconic as well with uh, yeah. all those fantastic machines. Yeah, Kogan what? is he's he's from Brooklyn and he said he has no access to farms and I can tell him by the tomatoes I've attempted to grow on my roof for the past few summers. He's, <laughs> he's right on with that. Uh, well, he, he must have been to the Prospect Park Farmers Market. I've right? a few People, times. Yeah, the rest of us. It's not like it's grown there, but it's. Uh, hey. Pay a fortune, absolute yeah. fortune for a, yeah, for a, a, a basket of eggs and all that good stuff. Um, yeah, but it, it's in, how did they come to work with him? What was the sort of, how did they, what was the interaction? Well, he's, um, I don't know the pitch process exactly, but he is a, he runs two different accounts in which he sorts out, uh, in, in one, he just sort of explains technology and how it works. And the other one, he, he sort of fiddles with new products. Um, he ha he's, he's very well known in, in this world in terms of product reviews and things like that. And I have to imagine because that tends to be more of a consumer play. Yeah. They looked at that. Teddy, I suppose the, the wider trend there is that you're not just looking to get coverage or, you know, with, three TV channels and some newspapers anymore, are you? There's so many influences out there and so many different ways that people are accessing information that, that are impinging on how they think. So that's the wider context of, of companies doing stuff like this, yeah? Yeah, and you have to. I mean, I, I I have to hand it to John Deere. I mean, they've done something clever. They've gotten you. They've gotten us talking about it. You know, I think, you know, um, 
it is so difficult to land earned media today. And it was always difficult, but it is just so much more difficult in an era where local media has been decimated. Uh, you know, uh, the legacy media that survives, they've had their newsroom budgets cut by 25% or 50% or whatever. Um, you know, and I think, um, you know, banking on um, earned media for, um, you know, reach or, uh, you know, it's just, it, it, it doesn't work. You know, if you're the White House, you can get a, a lot of business done that way. But even for the White House, they turn to influencers. So, you know, the challenge I think is as companies like mine, and I personally have tried to sell these kinds of activations into executives is there's still, I think, a rank of senior executive, not everybody, obviously, who feels like, you know, if they can't hold a piece of paper, you know, hold the New York Times in their hand or, mm. you know, get a call from their friend who, because they watched CNN and, they, you know, they don't feel like it's really real. And most CEOs don't operate in social spaces where they're going to hear from their friends because they've done a cool activation with a young influencer. So you got to hand it to this agency and, and, and their in-house team for selling this thing in because it's the kind of thing that a lot of companies just don't want to invest in because, again, they just don't have that tactile experience of getting the New York Times on their front desk and knowing that they really did something. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. No, good for them. So it's a really interesting piece of work. So check out the article. Frank, lots of acquisitions in the agency space over the last year. And there's another very uh, noteworthy deal broke this weekend. Very noteworthy. Um, LIYC, which is the former Lorente and Cuenca agency, uh, they have acquired Lambert Global, which is Grand Rapids, Michigan-based firm uh, with a specialty in financial and corporate communications. The numbers with this are really interesting in that LLYC says this is going to give them U.S. revenue of about $35 million a year uh, once the deal fully gets closed. And in 2022, they only had about, they had less than $5 million a year in U.S. revenue. So this is a, a fairly a significant increase in the amount of business they're doing in the U.S. Yeah, that will put them on the old agency rankings table that we're working on at the moment for our agency business report. Make sure you've got your agency on there if you want to be uh, referred to by clients year-round. Um, Teddy, in terms of growth at Precision, is is acquisition um, M&A something that you have looked at, are looking at, and will look at? Yes, we took um, well. First of all, we we, we got an investor um, early last year, which has been uh, great. A, mi- a minority investor, so not a, not an acquisition, but that's been um, helpful. You know, first of all, to have the kind of thought partnership, and also to be able to contemplate M and A in a more serious way than we've done before. So, yes, we've always grown organically. We've never made a uh, an acquisition before. We continue to grow organically, and certainly plan to continue to do that. And also, you know, hire great people with the ability to bring in business. But we absolutely want to contemplate some acquisitions maybe even pretty soon. Yeah. Oh, okay. Frank, do you hear that? That's going to be a story. Let's talk about AI. You know, it wouldn't be a podcast without talking about that. Interesting deal with Meltwater and Microsoft. That sounds significant. Is it significant or is it just one of these deals that is uh, trying to get a bit of PR? I believe it's significant because uh, Microsoft is such a leader in AI, and I think it speaks highly of Meltwater to uh, be on their radar and uh, to be picked up as a global partner, uh, which is what they're doing. And Meltwater uh, also gets benefit because they're going to be featured in the Azure marketplace um, and uh, as part of the ISV co-sell partner program uh, that Microsoft runs. Um, so I think it is, uh, it's a good feather in the cap for Meltwater. Yeah, I think they're also be involved with Copilot, won't they? Which is Microsoft's sort of generative AI product. So uh, an interesting partnership there. Teddy, AI, I bet all your clients are asking you about that. What are you telling them? 
<laughs> uh, they're asking. Uh, first of all, we work with um, a, a few of the major AI uh, players, so they're they're dealing with um, uh, the regulatory landscape and and um, consumer confidence and things like that. You know, for the companies that are just trying to figure out how to use AI, you know, again, it kind of depends what they're in. But I mean, you know, like one of the reasons I think the meltwater thing, totally agree with Frank, it is significant and is really interesting. Is I think it's going to be a while till we understand what all the consequences of this technology are going to be. And by the way, the technology is going to continue to evolve. The um, regulation may continue to evolve if we're still able to pass laws in this country. And so, you know, we may <laughs> never fully understand all of the implications of this thing, or they'll just continue to change. But I do think there are a few areas where it is clear today that you, you can use AI today to do a better job and save money while doing it. And I think social listening and, and kind of media, media monitoring and the stuff that Meltwater does is a perfect example of that. Now, you still need human beings. I really believe that. And not just because I'm, you know, in a people business one and um, ideally want to see um, not everyone in this country lose their jobs over the next few years. But, you know, you need human intelligence. There is no substitute for it just yet anyway. But, you know, when I think about the coding, the um, uh, the analysis, uh, all the stuff that has been done manually historically that could be done faster and better with an AI powered, um, you know, listening tool, um, you know, it's sort of a no brainer. So I think every company ought to start small, move fast, but start small and figure out, you know, where, where are the um, obvious places you can begin to experiment with this technology? That's a great example. I think um, design and video are, are uh, next, if not there now. And, you know, we could all rattle off 10 of those, but, but I'm, yeah. I, I totally agree with Frank that the meltwater thing is a big deal. Yeah, and check out our Dashboard 25 AI edition and our special features around that, which we published the other week uh, to get some cutting-edge uh, intel about it. And, uh, yeah, regulation and AI, that is a big story. Politicians are not renowned for understanding technology, and if even the people creating this technology have their own doubts about it, that's going to be an interesting dynamic. But anyway, again, another a subject for another podcast. Anyway, chips, Frank. They are the hottest property in the world, and NVIDIA is, is quickly becoming well, one of the largest companies in the I world. you were going to make a joke that you called them crisps, but... <laughs> yeah, I know, but it, uh, nobody laughs, Frank. Nobody we laughs. need the sad balloon thing. Yeah, nobody the laughs. The tumbleweed blows through the podcast. It's, there's a really interesting thing happening. In full disclosure, we're recording this at 2.45 on Wednesday, and NVIDIA's earnings uh, are going to come out in just uh, over an hour, and it's been called the most anticipated earnings report of the year. Um, is that why your breath is baited, Frank? <laughs> Yes, that must be it. Um, there's there's headlines out this morning that it is the most important stock on planet Earth, and it's one of those those times where you have to wonder. You know, that sounds like an Elon phrase. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, it, but it, look, it, considering the valuation of this company and all of the major companies in which it's been valued as being more value than you know, uh, like Amazon. Um, it, it is going to be interesting to see how this performs, whether it lives up to expectations, how they approach it, you know, what, what they say on an earnings call, you know, is it a very conservative by the book earnings thing or do, are they going to do something else? Um, so yeah, I, everybody's looking to see how they perform and, uh, our listeners will know how they performed. Yeah. Um, you by won't, the time they hear this, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, they always say under promise and over deliver don't they but I, every company's putting ai in yeah. their earnings now so well, I, I they, they want case, to get a bit of a bump on it don't N- they? nvidia is not the one out there saying 
overpromising. Uh, people are people are building deliver. this up so much. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. So Nvidia almost uh, can't win. You know, the and then of course we've got Intel supposedly yeah. building building this chip um, manufacturing plant, um, which we should really catch up on because we have a cover feature on that. So it's going to be a big massive story over the uh, coming months and years. Let's talk about Reddit. It's IPO arrangements, Frank. So yeah. slightly unusual, as you might expect for a company like Reddit. Yeah, it, it is. It's really interesting in that. Um, so 75,000 of their super users, uh, Redditors, are going to be able to buy the stock before it starts trading at the IPO price, uh, which is something that's usually only reserved for, for you know, mass share buyers, big mm. banks. You know, and at first thought you go, well, that's pretty cool that the most loyal people to a company, to a platform are going to have that opportunity. But of course, if the stock overperforms and they end up paying more for it than they're getting out of it, then they're they're not going to think it's cool. So it comes with a degree of risk as well. And I guess you would expect it to be like this, given that Reddit was yeah. kind of the place where all these crazy um, financial things That's happened, right. Yeah. right? You know, over the past few years with these stocks. And the IPO in and of itself has been a little bit of a ride. You know, they filed to go public in 2021 and it's, mm. it's been a while. Are you a Redditor, Frank? Here and there. I, I dabble, but I don't really dive into How it. How about you, Teddy? Uh, I'm a I'm a shade above dabble and a couple shades below redditor. I would say. Yeah, I always get a bit frightened going in there. It's you keep expecting. Well, one to get- thing about Reddit <laughs> is it it is uh, Reddit more than many other sources is used to inform Gen AI. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, and you think about some of the things you see on there, and it's, it gives you a little yeah, pause. So. And a lot of other things as <laughs> yeah. well. Is there a is there a verb for being reddited, or is that a verb? Well, I think I that's just it. Yeah. Okay. Just created. Oh, there you go. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> okay, people of planet Earth, you're welcome. On the move. All right, let's finish with people moves, Frank. And uh, new role for Sabrina Brown. Sabrina Brown, formerly of BCW, she is joining City as SVP of Personal Banking. She is going to work on communications in that role. Uh, she was previously the VP of Corporate Affairs uh, at BCW North America, which of course is being merged with Hilla and Knowlton into uh, a large agency called Burson. Um, Outcast Which has- doesn't want to be the biggest. It wants to be the best. Corey Dubrawa, the, uh, our podcast guest from the other week, was very insistent again on that, uh, on that topic in the, in the trade press. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I believe him. It's our fault. We're I, the ones I, building it up, apparently. I t- well, <laughs> Although, i got to be honest, Harold Burson was very, very um, interested in who was the biggest. Um, he, had it on his, he had the big plaque on his wall. But anyway, only kidding, Corey. Outcast is a new president, uh, Julia Noye. Uh, she most recently held some consulting roles in the tech sector at Visco, the app. Uh, she's also uh, done some work with Mastodon, and she has been with a few uh, investment firms, kind of out, outcast an interesting firm, you know, kind of a, it almost sounds like an oxymoron, one of the legacy, you know, tech specialists, yeah, Silicon founded Valley, by the Facebook um, firms, you know, markets um, and, uh, interested to see what she does there. Of course, it's an X15 agency. Yeah. Julie's, uh, Julie's great. Yep. So good luck to her. All right. Uh, thanks, Frank. Teddy, great, great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us and uh, continued, yeah, continued good fortune at Pro- precision and um yeah we'll we'll plot your progress over the the rest of uh, what is definitely going to be a busy year so thanks for coming on great um 
Hopefully we'll see you at the PR Week Awards, Teddy, 14th you will, you of will. March. Yeah, I'll see you yes. The Oscars of PR in New York City, the 25th anniversary show. It's going to be massive, listeners. You need to get your tickets if you haven't already. It's going to be massive. There's so many uh, special things we're doing for the 25th. Um, we've got our Crisis Comms Conference in D.C. on the 18th of April. That's going to be massive too, actually. There's, the tickets are selling out for that one, so please do get yours quickly. Global Awards in London on the 15th of May. Healthcare Awards and Conference in New York City on the 21st of May. And Women of Distinction on the 30th of May. So lots of convening opportunities over the next two or three months. And we look forward to seeing you out there. But that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week.